Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. It's a tough time for books. A wave of book bannings is occurring throughout numerous Republican-led states. Last school year, over 2,500 books were banned, according to PEN America. The vast majority of the targeted books feature LGBTQ plus themes or characters of color. Meanwhile, in Vermont, the state colleges announced in February a plan to close their libraries and sell off their books. Against this backdrop, Duncan McDougall has quietly crusaded to expand literacy and give away books to underserved children and communities throughout Vermont and New Hampshire. 25 years ago, McDougall founded the Children's Literacy Foundation, or CLIF, and run it out of his home in Waterbury Center. To date, Cliff has donated $10 million worth of books to over 350,000 children in about 85% of the towns in Vermont and New Hampshire. Cliff now runs over 1,000 programs per year in schools, rural libraries, prisons, and other locations where children and parents are at risk of low literacy. The literacy gap is wide. Nationally and in Vermont, more than two-thirds of fourth graders read below grade level, according to the Literacy Network. This week marks a milestone in this literacy crusade. After a quarter century at its helm, McDougall is stepping down as executive director of Cliff and handing the reins of the organization to Laura Rice, a nonprofit leader and former Cliff board member. And the organization is moving from McDougall's garage to a 3,000-square-foot new headquarters on Route 100 in Waterbury Center. I spoke with Duncan McDougall about what he's seen during his mission to expand literacy and the challenges. Duncan McDougall, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. It is always a pleasure, David. So we're sitting in this uh, really pretty stunning new location on Route 100 in Waterbury Center. Uh, people will know it probably for your neighbor, the Cold Hollow Cider Mill, which is a big uh, tourist attraction here. But what they may not know when they're eating those cider donuts is across the street is the world headquarters of something you began 25 years ago and are about to conclude your tenureship this week. Say a little bit about what this building means to you. This building, every time I step into it, uh, makes me shake my head because this is sort of the physical uh, reality of an idea um, that I've had and, and cherished for 25 years, uh, and that's the Children's Literacy Foundation, a nonprofit that's dedicated to inspiring a love of reading and writing among under-resourced children up to age 12 throughout New Hampshire and Vermont. And uh, with many, many other people, uh, we've built up this organization. Uh, we've served since 1998 when we started uh, over 375,000 kids. We've given away more than $10 million worth of books. Uh, and we have this fantastic group of presenters, more than 60 local authors, illustrators, poets, storytellers, and graphic novelists. And we send them all over the Twin States. And face-to-face, -face, one child at a time, we inspire young readers and writers. So uh, I've been to your house, and I know what... Children's Literacy Foundation, or CLIF, as it's known, uh, has been, uh, I have to step around boxes of books. There's a garage uh, in your home, but no car in it because it's filled with books. 
uh, there's a whole wing to your house that is only filled with people and books. Um, so you're moving out of your house and into a location. What does this enable you to do with the work and your mission? Well, we've been very fortunate in that Cliff has been growing pretty much every year, and we've been expanding the number of children that we serve, the number of families and communities that we serve. And as you mentioned, it's been located in my garage uh, for the past 25 years. And at the beginning, it was felt quite spacious, uh, since I was just talking to myself and uh, moving books around. Uh, but over time, the staff has expanded, the number of volunteers have expanded, the number of books <laughs> have expanded, and, uh, and we just completely ran out of room. So um, for the past two or three years, we probably could have uh, grown our staff and expanded uh, the number of books given away, even though out of that little garage, we now give away more than a million dollars worth of brand new books every year. Um, so I can't tell you uh, how excited I am to see our new um, space for a book donation library, which will now have room for about 25,000 children's books. And uh, it's much more efficiently designed, uh, and books are just going to be flowing in and out of this building uh, on an amazing basis. And we should be able to staff up, which means hopefully in the near future we'll be able to expand our programs and the services we provide, all of which, by the way, are completely free. I want to uh, ask you, as you're about to conclude your tenureship of this thing that began as an idea in your garage uh, 25 years on, just to take us back to your journey. Um, this was not in the cards for you. You graduated from Vanderbilt in 1983, a bright-eyed economics and political science major. Um, and then talk a little bit about the, the long and winding road that led to working on literacy. Wow. Um, I'll, I'll give a brief synopsis. Um, it is winding. Uh, so after Vanderbilt, um, I loved the outdoors, and I ended up working for a couple of years as a wilderness guide in Alaska, uh, New Zealand, and Labrador. And after a couple of years, decided that's what I wanted to do with my life. Uh, I knew a fair amount about guiding. I knew nothing about business. So I thought, well, I guess I better learn. So I ended up going to the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College and got an MBA there. And very quickly realized that uh, guiding really was not a, a strong business um, model, and uh, I needed to come up with something else. So I ended up uh, working as a management consultant, and I worked in Boston for seven years. In the middle there, I actually took a year off to travel, and then another couple of years to work as a freelance writer, but that's another longer story. Um, but after seven years of consulting in Boston, um, it really struck me that it was time for me to, to do something uh, to try to give back a little bit and to use some of the skills that I'd acquired at business school and in consulting. And uh, I All right, I want to pause you right there because as a, after seven years as a management consultant, most people who are management consultants look forward to the next seven years and the next seven years when they'll make even more money and have even more prestige in what they do. So it's not normal to check out and step off of that path that is greased to at least a future of financial certainty into a path of uncertainty. Um, talk about that moment. Boy, um, I don't know what caused me to do that, except that one day I remember sitting at my desk and for some reason realizing what my life would have been like had I not been a strong reader and writer. I've always loved books. My family are all readers. 
And, um, and I must have come across an article or something like that, but I suddenly realized, wait a second, if I didn't have the ability to be an effective reader and writer, I couldn't have gone on to college, I couldn't have gotten the jobs I had, I couldn't have had the income I had, the savings I had. Um, my life was completely upside down. And uh, I had worked on and off um, over time as a, as a teacher. I'd worked with refugee kids and families in Boston while I was consulting. I had um, worked as a teacher in Peru years ago um, teaching English. Um, and uh, I had worked when I was in college in the Tennessee State Penitentiary. As you said, I went to Vanderbilt, so I worked as a volunteer. So I had experience seeing the impact that uh, literacy and the ability to read and write had on people's lives. And uh, it seemed to me that that would be a really fun and challenging um, path to take for the rest of my professional career. And uh, so I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And I thought, well, if that's going to be a long-term thing, where, where do I want to do it? And uh, I have uh, spent a lot of time uh, exploring New Hampshire and Vermont, and I went to college in New Hampshire. And I thought, that's, that's where I'd love to spend time. And there is significant need for what I'm, I'm hoping to do in that area. So I moved up to New Hampshire and Vermont and um, started Cliff. Talk about the need that you saw at the beginning of this. And, you know, literacy is invisible. You don't know who, when you encounter in a day, has high literacy, low literacy, or no literacy. So it is kind of a quiet scourge in a way. I, I wonder what you saw as the landscape 25 years ago of literacy. Well, of course, as a consultant, I was doing research. Um, but as an individual who had spent some time with uh, a variety of folks with a range of literacy skills, it's always struck me that literacy is like a wall. It's an invisible wall. It's stronger and longer than the Great Wall of China. And it's a wall that exists throughout our society. And as you said, you just can't see it. But uh, it is very, very hard for people to get over that wall if they can't develop uh, literacy skills. And um, there are people who are more likely to be on one side of the wall because of financial issues, life issues, et cetera. I happen to have grown up on the other side of the wall where my family was educated. I had books throughout the house. I went to schools where um, the, um, you know, the teaching was really focused on developing strong literacy skills. And so reading and writing for me is like just walking down the road. It's something not only can I do easily, but I love to do, and I do it all the time. And just because of those circumstances, my, the opportunities open to me, the probability that I can live a comfortable and successful life is much higher. And it's always struck me that, um, that literacy is really a social justice issue. Uh, I love to read. I love sharing with kids the joy uh, of books and stories. Um, it's something I've always enjoyed doing. Um, but for me, Perhaps more importantly is the fact that, um, as Cliff's motto states, uh, we are opening books, opening minds, opening doors. And um, there are just a lot of folks who have doors closed to them. And by helping young kids develop uh, a love for reading and writing uh, can open so many doors for them and for their kids and grandkids too. We talked about how it's invisible and it's quiet, but you see illiteracy up close Talk about, give us an example. What do you see? What does that look like? Because for people who, as you say, it's like walking, they can't imagine 
what it's what how impenetrable the world looks if you can't walk or in this case you can't read talk about a child who you've encountered who struggles with literacy and what the world looks like to them actually i'm going to change it a little bit um, i'll tell you a whole group of people that i see um, who are impacted and that is uh, inmates um, so one of our longest standing programs at the children's literacy foundation is working in prisons and we, the reason we do that is that we are trying to help inmates um, be more comfortable sharing books and stories with their kids. 70% of American inmates, on average, have low literacy skills. And when you have a chance to spend a lot of time in various prisons, I've, and I don't know how long I've been in prisons, but it's been a long, long time, um, many of the folks are there because their opportunities were so limited. They had trouble in school, they didn't like school, um, various you know, life stresses, um, the ACEs, as they say, um, have affected them. And um, so you know, that's one of the outcomes, unfortunately, is uh, for a lot of folks, uh, literacy has limited their opportunities and uh, in such a way that it has a huge negative impact on their lives and those of their families. I mean, what you're saying is low literacy has ended up, landed, helped land these people in prison. It's a factor, um, and low, low literacy is, is linked to a lot of things. It's linked to you know, uh, worse outcomes medically, it's linked to poverty, it's linked to shorter lifespans, it's linked to probability of incarceration. None of these are directly linked. Doesn't mean if you have low literacy skills, any of these things are necessarily gonna happen. But you know, the odds are a little bit more stacked against you, and, um, and these are terrible outcomes. And just by helping a child grow up with strong literacy skills, with an interest and a love of reading and writing, those odds change, and uh, they change in a major way. You know, for example, in Vermont, New Hampshire, um, among under-resourced children, and those are the kids that we serve, we serve kids up to age 12, under-resourced kids, um, more than 60% of under-resourced kids in New Hampshire and Vermont are growing up with low literacy skills. And um, so the probability of them Getting through high school is much lower. The probability of them going beyond high school is lower. And when you have trouble uh, doing something, you're less likely to do it. So for kids who have trouble reading and writing, they're less likely to want to do it because it's not as much fun. And you do it less, and it becomes more difficult. You far fall further behind, and it's a vicious cycle. So what we do at the Children's Literacy Foundation is we try to inspire those kids and give them experiences and resources that can help them change that cycle. So as I said, we send out uh, dozens and dozens of inspiring authors, illustrators, poets, and storytellers. Folks like Jason Chin, who just won the Caldecott Award, and Ted Shai, amazing poet, and um, uh, Merrick Bennett, who does graphic novels, and folks who are known all over the country and we pay them to travel around New Hampshire and Vermont, and they go wherever those kids are. We send them to shelters, we send them to low-income housing developments, we send them to prisons, to schools, to libraries. We work with foster kids, migrant kids, refugee kids. Um, we work with families with substance issues. Um, wherever kids might be at risk, we go. We give inspiring, exciting presentations to really help kids understand the power of literacy, uh, and then we also provide support to the parents and the caregivers. We have free conferences for our teachers and uh, librarians. And finally, uh, we give away tons and tons of beautiful new books. A lot of these kids, and I'd say probably the majority of the kids that we serve, have few or no books at home, which is 
an astounding thing for the two of us because our houses are full of books. But that is not the case for many, many families. Books are expensive. And so what we do is we have an entire library of beautiful books uh, on a huge range of topics, all of them brand new, all of them free. And at the end of every Cliff presentation, of which we have hundreds, probably this year we'll have seven or 800 presentations around the two states. At the end of every presentation, kids have the opportunity to come up to five or six or seven tables covered with books and choose any one or two or sometimes up to 10 books of their choice to keep. And for a child who's never had that opportunity to choose a book that's really on a topic that they love is life-changing. You've mentioned that you've spent a lot of time in prisons. People don't think of an organization called the Children's Literacy Foundation as the founder going to jail <laughs> and spending time in jail. What do you want people to know about the people who you encounter there and why you focus on them? Well, we focus on them because through them we're trying to help their children grow up to have strong reading and writing skills. Um, and uh, I've been working in prison since I was in college, and it is one of my favorite uh, parts of uh, my work because, first of all, I'm working with a large group of parents uh, and grandparents who care about their kids. They, many of them know that they've messed up in a big, big way. But at this point, there's not a lot they can do about that. And they do want to step forward and make a difference in their children's lives. And by the way, none of the inmates, men and women, we work in prisons all across New Hampshire and Vermont, none of them have to come to our events. They've come because they've chosen to do that, and they want to uh, make a difference. And so what we do is we have regular seminars with them to help them understand how they can share books and stories with the kids in their lives. Many of them didn't have that when they were kids. A lot of them tell stories of, you know, parents who had substance abuse issues or were abusive or what have you. Um, and so, you know, storytelling was just not part of their reality. So we explain to them how it works and how to make it more fun and easy. And given that 70% of them have low literacy skills, we teach them strategies on how they can still share stories, even if they're not strong readers. And, and how can they share stories if they can't read? Well, if you're talking about children's books, you can look at the pictures and tell a story. You can have a friend read the story to you and you can retell it. You can have the child tell the story or you can alternate pages. Um, we show them a lot of different ways that make it much more uh, accessible for them. Uh, and then we model storytelling. And um, it's really a surreal experience, I must say, uh, to be standing in front of a group of maybe 60 or 70 uh, male inmates uh, and reading a children's story that's written for three, four, or five-year-olds. And they love it. Um, it's a little bit of sunshine that comes into their, to their world. And um, it's funny, the first time I did it, I was apprehensive. I only read about five or six pages of a 20-page story because you know, clearly they are not interested in a little kid's book, but I wanted to show them how it works. And then I stopped, and it was time for them to come up and choose books for their kids. And they didn't have it. They wanted me to finish the story first. They love to hear stories. Uh, so we tell a story every time we go. And at the end of every seminar, they get to come up and choose a brand new book for every child in their life, uh, you know, your child or grandchild or niece or nephew. They write a personal note in the book, uh, and then we mail that book home to the child. We also have paid for recording equipment for all the prisons we work with, 
And um, so inmates can choose a brand new book from Cliff and read it onto MP3 or CD. And then those recordings and the books are sent home to the children. And then lastly, um, we have regular family literacy celebrations where we have food and games and storytelling um, and books for all the kids. And those are really, really fun when the families come in to the uh, correctional facilities to, to gather. So this is where I get to say that you have invited me to join you on one of these prison visits, and I accompanied you to Berlin, New Hampshire, a state penitentiary there in northern New Hampshire. And one of the things you told me was, don't Google the names of the people you meet. They're all there for crimes that are probably in the news. Why did you say that? Because they are people too. They're parents and grandparents. And, you know, for a lot of us, we are not judged on our worst day. Um, but for some folks, they are. And everyone has a bad day. Some, day. some people have really bad days and with terrible consequences, no doubt about that. But once that's happened, um, th they need to move forward and they, they want to maintain connection. Kids who don't have strong connections with their families, with their parents, um, it, it's, it's challenging. And so I can't tell you, David, how many stories I've heard of inmates who have said, you know, you have helped us, Cliff has helped us reestablish uh, my relationship with my kids. You know, they didn't communicate with me. We had nothing to talk about. I started sending them books that I knew they would like. Uh, we started talking about the books. Before, when I called home, I could get 15 seconds out of them. Now we talk for half an hour about the latest book, and they tell me the next book they want, and now they're one of the best readers in the class, uh, and it really transforms their relationship. And the literacy side of things, that's super important. But the whole relationship is also critically important for those kids, too. Is there one encounter with somebody who's in prison that sort of stays in your mind? Oh, gosh, there have been so, so many. Um, one that just randomly comes to mind is uh, a gentleman uh, up in Berlin. Uh, he came to me and he said, you know, I have a child who has learning disabilities, and he's really, you know, several grades behind. And, um, you know, the one thing he loves is um, uh, Thomas the, the Train. And um, so... Just wanted to let you know that, and I doubt there's anything you can do about it. We happened to find this book that had like 20 uh, Thomas uh, the Train stories, and we, we mailed it to the prison specially for him, and uh, he was just, he was tearful uh, next time I saw him because his son loved the stories. They, whenever they talked on the phone, they read the stories together, and it was a huge um, thing for him. And um, it's, we love to, to help People. We love to introduce literacy and stories into people's lives, into kids' lives. And I have the best job in the world because I'm one of the presenters. I'm a storyteller. And I get to stand in front of a room full of kids. And their eyes are all in front of me and their faces. And I can see their reactions. And my storytelling is very interactive. And it's just a blast to see that and to help them recognize uh, the power and the pleasure of stories and reading and writing. And that's what Cliff does in pretty much every town in New Hampshire and Vermont. Chances are we've been to your town, wherever you are in New Hampshire and Vermont, and we've been there many times with lots of different presenters and giving away lots of books. And uh, it's something we intend to do for a long time to come. 
Tell me about the very first year of Cliff. What did the program look like? Well, um, I, very first year of Cliff, I was a volunteer executive director, and um, we pulled together a wonderful uh, board of directors, and um, we came up with the ideas for the program. So we started with our rural library program, where we provided a collection of books for a rural library in need. Uh, and then we gave one presentation. I say we because I was the only presenter. Um, so I would come and do one storytelling for the uh, kids in the town. And that was that program. And since then, by the way, we have now sponsored probably close to 90% of all the rural public libraries in New Hampshire and Vermont. And most we've sponsored multiple times. So the first event was in Hill, New Hampshire. And I remember it very clearly because um, I was so excited to start this organization. And uh, we arrived and they had about a third of the town come out. They had a big sheet cake with the Cliff logo on it. We did storytelling, gave the books away, um, had a lot of fun. And, um, and since then, that program has grown. We now give probably four or five times as much uh, resources and storytelling. Um, but in the first year, to answer your question, we served six towns. We saw 500 kids. We gave away $7,800 worth of books. This past year, um, complete year, I think we had close to 800 events. Uh, we gave away about a million dollars worth of books, um, and attendance at our events was about 52,000. We are now at a moment where there's a focus on literacy in a new way. Um, there is a push for anti-literacy. This is a moment when books are being banned. And uh, I was reading uh, an account by a, an education professor who was quoting Missouri's 1847 anti-literacy law to remind us of uh, the power of literacy. And that law said, quote, no person shall keep or teach any school for the instruction of Negroes or mulattoes in reading or writing in this state. Um, it was a reminder that people understand that literacy and education is a very powerful tool, and they did not want African Americans. They wanted to limit and restrict access to literacy. Now we're seeing this wave of book bannings the things you're trying to give away, perhaps some of the very books that you do give away are being banned in parts of this country. What are your thoughts on that? Our service territory is New Hampshire and Vermont, and we serve many, many folks who live in small towns in remote areas of the two states, and we love going to those towns. And um, one of the reasons why we love going there is we bring with us these inspiring presenters who come with lots of different stories and experiences from all around the world, but we also bring with us boxes and boxes of beautiful books from all walks of life, from all parts of the world. And as they say, David, um, you know, books can be mirrors and windows. And what we want to do is for those uh, kids who don't see anyone like them in their world to see a book that reflects uh, characters just like them. And for people who have never had a chance to leave their town or go more than three or four towns away, to see the tremendous variety and um, magical diversity of this world, uh, to see that through books as well. So we have books from different parts of the world and different walks of life and different types of folks. And we want kids to know uh, the diversity that exists in the world and to celebrate that. Um, and one thing about Cliff is that we never force anyone to read any book at all. 
Um, all of the books that we give away are by choice. So whenever we serve a school or a library or a shelter or a prison, they get an on-site library of books from us. And whoever is in charge of that program gets to choose whichever books they want. We have a list of about 1,000 books from which to choose. And whenever we bring books to kids, they get to choose what they want. We'll lay out hundreds and hundreds of titles. And um, so you get to choose what you'd like to read. And if that doesn't grab you, then grab something else. A big focus of the book bannings have been books for children about LGBTQ issues. What, in your experience, has been the response to books like that that may be part of the offerings that Cliff offers? Uh, we have not had any negative response. Uh, we have a wide range of books, including books with characters uh, LGBTQ, and, um, and those, you know, if kids are interested in them, they choose them, and if they're not, they don't. And we have a policy that if, if someone chooses a book and they don't like it, um, they can send it back and we'll send them something else. Have you heard back from kids or families that it's been important to them to read about somebody who is perhaps struggling with some of the issues and identity concerns that they may have? Um, yes, we have heard from, from families who've said that they really appreciate seeing certain types of characters, certain types of um, cultures represented. Um, for example, we do a lot of work with refugee and new American families. Uh, and some of, some of our books are in English and Swahili or English and Spanish or English in other languages, and they have characters from around the world. And a lot of families appreciate the fact that um, they are seeing themselves and their cultures uh, in books because that's something they haven't seen a lot of. What have you seen has been the toll of COVID on literacy and on children? That, David, is a very good question. And uh, you could ask that of any teacher in any school, and they would tell you it has been severe. Um, COVID has had an impact in literacy, no doubt. Um, literacy rates have been challenged. A lot of kids uh, have not had the same access to, to books and reading. Um, for an extended period of time, as you know, a lot of libraries were closed. Um, and kids, you know, those kids who are most adversely affected are those in families where they don't have many or any books at home. And those are the ones that need the books the most. Um, but also, uh, COVID has had a huge impact uh, just on the social and emotional um, needs of kids. Um, you know, in younger ages, it's just so important to be around other kids and to understand relationships um, and how to deal with other folks and to how, you know, to develop your own unique personality. And a lot of those interactions were limited or under stress. Uh, and what that has meant, alas, is that a lot of kids are, are struggling. Um, and, you know, in some ways, Cliff's work is more important than ever. I hate to say it. I wish that were not the case, but I think it is true. Uh, and a lot of um, schools are struggling, um, not only with the, um, you know, the curriculum and the reading levels and all of that, but also with uh, social and emotional issues. So it's a very challenging time. So if you have any teachers uh, in your life, uh, please give them a big hug and uh, tell them how much we appreciate all they're doing. Some of the, the statistics around literacy and reading are pretty shocking. 67% um, of fourth graders read below grade level. Um, nearly 130 million American adults read below a sixth grade level, according, according to the U.S. Department of Education. Um, 
and studies are showing that about a third of young pil children are missing reading benchmarks, uh, which is up significantly from pre-pandemic rates. How do we turn that around? Well, there's no one solution. I, I think what we need to do is recognize the issue, uh, celebrate those uh, individuals and organizations that are trying to make a difference, support schools and teachers as much as possible. Um, but one of the most powerful ways, quite honestly, is to have parents and caregivers get much more involved. It's funny, um, I, we give a lot, through the Children's Literacy Foundation, we give a lot of workshops and seminars to parents and caregivers because we recognize that's a really important way to reach kids. And it's amazing to me how many parents and caregivers feel that this is not their job. That's, that's why we pay our taxes, so that our teachers could teach kids how to read. I don't know anything about teaching kids how to read. But the reality is that one of the most powerful things we can do as an adult in child's life is to read with them and to share books and stories with them and to talk about the books that you've read or the articles to model an interest in, in, uh, in literacy. That's a huge um, factor in the probability that a child is going to grow up as a strong reader and writer. So I tell that to the inmates I work with. I tell that to um, all of the adults and caregivers is if you really care about the kids and you want to improve the probability that they are growing up happy and successful and have opportunities, read to them. Doesn't matter what you read. Talk about books, read magazines, stories, comic books, whatever. But when you do that, you are modeling a love of reading and writing. You're expanding a child's vocabulary. You're expanding their attention span. Uh, you're building uh, you know, neural networks in that child, especially young kids from birth to age six. You are physically building a child's brain right in front of you every time you share a book and a story with them. So no matter how you do it, whether you read all the words in a book, none of the words in a book, you just open up a book and start talking about what you see. Oh, that reminds me, look at that tree. Remember that time when we climbed that tree at Uncle Fred's house and you fell out? I was so scared, but you weren't scared at all, were you? Just conversations like that. Bit by bit by bit, that changes a child's life. That changes their trajectory. That changes the trajectory of their kids. Uh, it's amazing the impact that stories and books and reading and writing have on a person's life. And that's what the children's literacy is all about, is trying to, you know, we, we feel like we're, we're uh, fishing, and we've got this big tackle box, and the lures are the presenters that we have and the books, and we're just throwing them out there. And uh, one by one, we're, we're catching fish, and every, every child is interested in a different lure, gets excited by something different that we do, but we have so many of them that we know we're going to get most of them. Right now in Vermont, a controversy is raging about the fact that the state college system has announced it is going to close its physical libraries because people don't need books anymore. They only, according to them, access information digitally. What's your answer to that? I thought of you when I saw that news that books don't matter anymore. Well, I'm not one who would say that you know, we should not be reading online, we should not be reading digitally. Um, that, that is going to happen all the time. But there is some research that indicates that holding a physical book in your hand or, or having someone read a book to you actually is far more powerful and is more likely for you to, to process and retain that information. 
Um, so getting back to the idea of you know, reading books with the child, um, if you had a choice of having you know, a great um, reader read an audiobook versus you actually reading to a child, uh, you doing it is, has far more impact. And you know, I'm old school, I'm in my 60s, and uh, I grew up reading physical books. So I love books. I love the ability to flip through a book and stop anywhere I wish. Um, but I do think there is research indicating that actually reading a physical book has a greater impact. I think both are important, and it would be a shame, in my view, for books, for libraries to disappear, because um, I think they're, they're critical. And last point I'd make, David, on that is, um, if you grew up with the ability to read and write, the interest to read and write, you have access to the world, because there are libraries everywhere, at least there are, hopefully now, and will continue to be, and you can access that information anytime. Obviously, you can do it online as well, um, but libraries uh, are like a door that you can open and just step through uh, and go any direction you wish. You've invested 25 years of your life in this project that began as an idea. How do you know you've made a difference? Well, um, I feel... Cliff has made a difference in the lives of literally hundreds of thousands of kids because we have exposed them to fantastic, inspiring presenters. They've heard ideas and information, and they've had experiences they've never had before. Many of the schools that we serve say, well, the last time an outside presenter came was two or three years ago. In some schools, they might have 15 presentations over the course of a year, thanks to Cliff. I know that we've made a difference in children's lives because I hear from the parents, from the caregivers, uh, from the teachers, and from the kids themselves about how excited they get about the books that we let them choose and keep. Uh, we hear from the teachers about the changes that we see in the children, in their level of interest in reading and writing, uh, in the number of times that they're sharing books, you know, stories and poems with them. Um, and lastly, I just see it talking to the kids. Um, again, I have the best seat in the house. I'm standing in front of a large group of kids all the time. Sometimes I'll do five, six presentations in a day. And from the start of a presentation to the end, um, you can see the transformation of the kids and their excitement. Uh, and that's what we're all about. We're about building an excitement, a thrill of literacy and words and stories and reading and writing. And I think Cliff does that really well. And I can't tell you how excited I am to be here in our new headquarters in Waterbury Center, um, to know that um, I'm passing on um, the leadership of Cliff to Laura Rice, who's our new executive director. She's going to be fantastic. We have a great staff, an awesome board. We've got tons of volunteers. The next chapter in Cliff's life is going to be even more exciting. You've also had evaluations done to kind of help you understand what impact Cliff has had. What have you learned from those? Yes, we, we invested about $75,000 in two studies uh, to track the impact that Cliff has had through our programs. And uh, the, the changes that were um, studied by the researchers, um, these are national educational researchers, included children reading and writing more, um, um, signing up for library cards, being more interested in class, the quality of the work improving, um, there, there were a number of measures that were very impressive, but one that I loved, which was unexpected, was that the parents of the kids that we serve were more likely to be more involved in literacy, and many of them actually went back 
to get their GEDs or additional education because of the presentations that we gave not only to the kids, but to them as well, underscored the importance of uh, literacy and uh, the pleasure and the power of reading and stories. And so it was really exciting uh, to see us affecting multiple generations at the same time. What concerns you as you look out at the world now, um, soon to be a, a, a retired citizen of this world, although something tells me you're going to be a very busy retired person, what's the next frontier f that you want to focus your energies on? Um, well, just personally, I'm going to be focusing on two things. One is I'm going to continue as a storyteller here at Cliff, and I'm going to continue to do everything I can to help um, the organization succeed, which I know it will. Um, but also, just personally, uh, I have been involved. I started another nonprofit that's involved in green energy work, uh, encouraging renewable energy, energy efficiency, and emissions reduction. It's called Waterbury Leap. And in fact, on April 15th, we're having our next LEAP Energy Fair, which is the largest energy fair in Vermont. And um, climate change is the biggest threat of all. Um, and it's interesting that literacy is related to that because um, folks who have developed strong literacy skills have the ability to read more deeply and really understand um, the issues behind uh, the impact of climate change. And it's, it's harder to, in, you know, in a blithe, quick few statements, convince them, oh, don't worry about it, nothing's going on. Um, I think the power of literacy has the power, uh, gives the power to people um, to really go more deeply on a variety of topics and uh, understand uh, the right way to proceed. So anyways, for me, um, climate change is uh, such an important issue, and so I'm going to be probably focusing most of my time trying to move things forward in, in whatever small way I can. You've uh, mentioned in the course of our conversation here uh, two different nonprofits that you've started, Waterbury Leap, Children's Literacy Foundation. For people out there who have an idea or a passion, what can you share is the secret to making that idea into a successful nonprofit? Well, um First of all, the first step is to, to sort of clarify your idea in as simple a way as possible. The second is to talk to other people and find out, has it been done? Does it make sense? Who else might be interested? Uh, eventually, you'll find a cohort, hopefully, of folks who feel the same way that you do. Uh, and then think about, well, what's, what's the next way to really start developing momentum around this idea? And for a lot of folks, I, I get calls fairly frequently from, from people saying, you know, I'm thinking of starting this nonprofit. How do I do it? And often I'll encourage them not to start a nonprofit, but really to do it uh, in sort of a bootstrapping fashion. Just do it uh, on a shoestring, a little bit of money or just elbow grease, uh, get some events going, and see, see what it's like. You'll learn through that process, and then you'll find out whether it's something, first of all, that you want to spend a lot of time on. Secondly, whether a lot of people are with you, uh, and thirdly, whether it made an impact. And uh, it's important to, to learn all those things before you jump in and start a nonprofit, because a nonprofit is a major effort. As I said, it takes a lot of care and feeding. It's like a choice between getting a gerbil or a horse. You know, a nonprofit, you got to feed, you got to clean. Um, there's a lot of requirements uh, to keep it up and running and running successfully. Uh, it's a major endeavor. Uh, there are a lot of things one can do in this world that make a really positive difference, 
that don't require a nonprofit. But if you, if you want to step it up and have a sustained, uh, ongoing uh, impact, a nonprofit can be a great way to go. Um, so it's, it's a mixture of uh, possibilities, um, but I think really testing things out on a smaller level first, finding a group of people who really care the same way you do about that topic, and then brainstorming about where can we go from here will help you decide. The departure of a founder can be a moment of peril for an organization. Um, I personally know of, you know, nonprofits that have really foundered at this moment. You've been very thoughtful about this moment and about making it successful and being very intentional about it. What are you doing to ensure that this moment is one that uh, propels the organization forward rather than becoming, uh, you know, a, a moment of crisis? Well, clearly I care so uh, deeply about Cliff, and I, I want its impact on kids and families to continue for decades to come. So at year 20, five years ago, I told the board that I planned to step down at year 25. So we had five years to plan for this transition. Over the course of those five years, uh, we um, strengthened our board with folks who had gone through leadership transitions, who had been board chairs, uh, who had experience with capital campaigns because we knew we had to build and fundraise for uh, a new headquarters. We also reached out to 17 nonprofits that themselves had gone through leadership transitions. Most of them had gone through founders' leadership transitions, which are a whole other kettle of fish and an even riskier proposition. And we interviewed them and said, well, you know, tell us about your experience. What worked? What didn't? What should we make sure that we do? What should we make sure we never do? And so I have pages and pages of notes from those 17 nonprofits, and we learned a lot. For example, um, my intent was to serve on Cliff's board in perpetuity because I care so much about this organization. One of the strongest findings that we had from the 17 nonprofits is you should never serve on the board. It's too complicated because then you've got two leaders. You've got the old leader, the new leader, the board, the staff don't know which person to turn to. So the next week, we changed the bylaws and we took out the bylaw that said that I was gonna be director in perpetuity. Um, so we learned a lot uh, and uh, we have been very careful. We uh, were thoughtful about the process of recruiting. We had actually almost 50 applicants for the position and we chose someone who is gonna be absolutely fantastic. Her name is Laura Rice. She actually served on Cliff's board for six years and served as our board chair. She's been in mission-driven organizations for a couple of decades, including in leadership roles. She's been a development director for eight years and a very important part of serving as an executive director of a nonprofit. Uh, and she cares just as deeply uh, as I do about this mission and our work. Uh, and I've had a chance to work with her extensively, and she's going to be fantastic. And I have no doubt we have such a strong staff, such a fantastic and dedicated board uh, and volunteers and presenters. Cliff has never been stronger, and I am so excited to see uh, where this whole team uh, will take the organization going forward. Where do you think it will go? What could you imagine in 10 years Cliff will look like? I would guess in 10 years, this um, beautiful building will be full and active. Um, you know, a million dollars worth of books going out the door in a year is going to be a pittance. Uh, and I think we're going to be serving um, towns more frequently. We're going to be deepening our impact 
uh, on uh, the organizations that we already serve, everything from, as I said, schools, libraries, shelters, prisons, um, affordable housing, et cetera. Um, and we're gonna have a wider range of services available. I think we're probably gonna deepen our online resources so that people can access them all the time. And by the way, I encourage everyone to visit our website, which is cliffonline.org, and that's Cliff with one F, because we have great professionally produced videos and tons and tons of ideas uh, for inspiring young readers and writers that people can do for free or for very little. Um, so we'll, we'll deepen that as well. Um, but I think mostly we're gonna be serving more kids and we're gonna be serving them more extensively. And obviously the people around those kids, the parents, the caregivers, the teachers, the librarians, et cetera. Um, but that's one thing that I love about Cliff is everyone who's been involved has added something to the mix. And uh, you know, I'm just curious to see what the, the new folks in the next generation will bring. And finally, uh, Duncan McDougall, as you prepare to hand the keys, literally, to a building and an organization to new leaders, what are you proudest of? Boy, I am proudest of the huge community of folks involved in Cliff uh, that have made this possible. I'm proudest of the fact that we have had almost 100 board members, 30-something um, staff members. We have thousands of donors. And by the way, I forgot to mention, we don't get any state or federal funds. Um, everything is community supported, and, um, and every, all our programs are free. So all the people involved, all the partners, thousands of partners that we've had, all the volunteers, the presenters, I'm proud of the fact that we've created a whole family um, that's going to continue moving this forward. And I'm going to be um, probably the, you know, the proudest part of this, the family because uh, I just care about it so much. I'm going to be the, certainly the biggest um, cheerleader of this whole team that's going to take it forward. And I can't wait to see what impact we're going to have on those under-resourced kids and families um, throughout Vermont, New Hampshire for decades to come. Well, Duncan McDougall, thank you for your service and for talking with us on the Vermont Conversation. It is always a pleasure. Thank you, David, very much.